hppodcraft.com. Do you believe in ghosts? I asked Runciman. I had to ask him this very platitudinous question, more because he was so difficult a man to spend an hour with than for any other reason. You know his books, perhaps, or more probably you don't know them. The Running Man, The Elm Tree, and Crystalline Candlelight. He's one of those little men who are constant enough in this age of immense overproduction of books. Men who publish every autumn their novel, who arouse by that publication and certain critics eager appreciation and praise, who have a small and faithful public whose circulation is very small indeed, who when you meet them have little to say, are often shy and nervous, pessimistic and remote from daily life. Such men do fine work, are made but little of in their own day, and perhaps 50 years after their death are rediscovered by some digging critic and become a sort of cult with a new generation. That is the first paragraph of Hugh Walpole's Mrs. Lunt. It may sound like he's actually talking about H.P. Lovecraft, (laughs) which would be appropriate because this is the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at HPPodcraft.com, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Leike. Yeah, that may be the most perfectest intro we've had on this show before. (laughs) And it also exposes a little bit of uh, literary fraud. I was telling Heather just this last week as I was watching Running Man, on television, and I was like, you know, The Hunger Games is just a ripoff of The Running Man, but it looks like Stephen King ripped that off from Runciman here. Hello? <laughs> Did I, I thought I lost you. You had no reaction to that at all? <laughs> I just wanted to leave you hanging. You really did, man. (laughs) I went from smiling to being like doubtful about myself to that's funny, right? (laughs) Who was our lovely reader that we just that was Heather Clinky, who I was saying that to, who decided to kill it this week for us. You know, we had a a female reader last week. We got one this week. I think let's keep up this trend. I like hearing uh, the ladies' voices on the show. We don't have enough of them. We don't represent enough of the ladies here. You know what? This week, we also have a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off at squarespace.com, enter code HPL at checkout. It's simple. It's easy. All It's all drag and drop content to create your sites. They've got 24-7 live chat and email support. Please take advantage of the offer. I, I know we've got a ton of listeners out there who are very creative. Every week, we get messages about the comics you're working on and your art and your sculpture. There's people writing books, selling jewelry. You got to have your own site squared up if you want to get that stuff out there. I, I often say if your hair is your head suit, then your your website is your mind suit. Plans start at $8 a month, and that includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Mm-hmm. Make sure, again, to use the code HPL, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. That'll get you 10% off your first purchase. And it will also show support for our show, which is super important. That's why they're sponsoring us. Please support our show. Please support Squarespace. A better web starts with your website, squarespace.com. Hey, speaking of a better web, and I think this actually might relate to the story that we're going to cover today a bit. Okay. But over the weekend, I caught Stuart Gordon's new play. Mm -hmm. It's a play written by this guy, Benjamin Brand, and it's called Taste. I don't know if you've heard about this at all. Well, do you remember there was a news article, I don't know if it was a couple of years ago, in Berlin, this guy advertised online that he wanted to cook and eat somebody and a guy responded and they did it together yeah that's what this play was about that incident it's not set in germany i mean it's american in an apartment but sure it was really good i hope that he tours it more people can see it they had a kitchen on set 
and they mm-hmm. cooked. You could smell the onions and everything over the course of this play. It was very visceral. And, you know, the guy came over. They This happened with the actual story. They cut his Johnson off. They ate mm-hmm. it together. And then sometime later, he actually murdered the person, stored him in his freezer, and over time ate his entire, every part of him. I did hear that story. Yeah. And it was pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy that this happened. And, and how do you prosecute it? Because I don't think cannibalism is illegal in Germany. What? And the guy was, was willing to do it. So I actually don't know how the real news story ended up. Now, I heard it was a little gruesome and that some people were getting lightheaded while they were watching it, etc. Uh-huh. But the thing that really surprised me about it is actually kind of a touching play. Like, you really started caring about these two guys. and Really? The, obviously, what they're doing is pretty messed up. To put it lightly. You, you separate that and start caring about them and you really want them to, to do it. You're like, I hope these guys get what they want, you know? And it was at the end of it, I felt very sad for both of them because it was clearly some people who have some intimacy problems trying to connect. Right. The play was really about that connection. I recommend it, um, but it did remind me a little bit of this <laughs> uh, story as well. Okay, we'll have to talk about that because there's no cannibalism there's whatsoever n- in the story. No, but it is about two men trying to kind of form a connection. Yeah. Before we jump into the story, what about uh, our author, uh, Walpole? What do we know about him? Well, he Sir Hugh Seymour Walpole, and he was born in 1884 and died in 1941, so he lived past Lovecraft. He's from New Zealand originally, but he spent most of his life in England, so right. he's really considered himself an Englishman. And he used to tour around the States actually quite a bit in the 20s and 30s as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. He was a huge best-selling author, really big at the time, but since he passed away, his fame sort of passed on with him. Sure. I mean, it's a name that I have heard before, but I wasn't familiar with his work. One thing it said about him and it was that he was a spontaneous storyteller, writing quickly to get all his ideas on paper, seldom revising. So his description in the opening paragraph of this of the character of Runciman is actually kind of a description of himself. Yeah. You know, somebody who just produces a lot of material. I think that some of his biography has a bearing on this story. Hopefully people don't think we're reading into it too much. He was a homosexual and he was practicing homosexual at the time. But of course, homosexuality was illegal in Britain. Right. As it was, I think, in most countries, mm-hmm. which now in this day seems pretty crazy. We have gay marriage legal. Yeah. At a time where it was just illegal to just be homosexual. It was illegal and, and you could be seriously punished it wasn't yeah it wasn't like you were going to be shunned socially i mean you could get the oscar wilde treatment and be off in prison so it's actually very scary to be honest about that part of yourself it's still hard now to be gay i mean it's getting better obviously it's still really difficult for a lot of people to come to grips with their sexuality you know if the society deems it illegal (laughs) yeah then it might be something you feel a little bad exactly now walpole he he his whole life was always looking for what he called the perfect friend yeah. Clearly, it was obviously difficult to meet people if you have to hide who you are. And I think the character that both of the characters in this story reflect this idea a little bit. And it's something that we see over and over in the horror genre, definitely in Lovecraft. These pairs of men who do these things, you know, they're always looking for that perfect companion. It's not always sexual. It's just that I wish I could share who I really am with somebody else. Yeah. It's that desperate urge to have a companion. Even if you're not in a relationship with one another, even mm-hmm. if you're two homosexual men who aren't necessarily attracted to one another, yeah, yeah. and you find each other, you at least have that in common. Right. And that's something that you both know what it's like hiding that secret from mm-hmm. so many people. Because I knew about his background beforehand. So reading the story, I, maybe I was seeing into it a little bit, but yeah. let's talk about it more when we discuss the story. Yeah, yeah. There was an interesting in his biography that he was sent to boarding school in England when he was around nine. That's when he left Auckland. Apparently, this place was horrible. I imagine it being one of those Dickensian boarding right. schools. He said the place, the food was inadequate. The morality was twisted and terror. 
Sheer, stark, unblinking terror stared down every one of its passages. The excessive desire to be loved that has always played so enormous a part in my life was bred largely, I think, from the neglect I suffered there. So a really awful formative experience in school for him. But now there is a somewhat happy ending. He did eventually find a companion. Yeah, sort of strange. He found this uh, policeman. He settled down up in the Lake District, which is just really close to where I live, and it's Mm -hmm. beautiful up there. He's very associated with the Lake District, as a matter of fact. I think when they were building it out, he was in residence. He met this policeman who was married and had kids, and... Now, maybe I'm misreading it, but it seems like they had some kind of arrangement because he was wealthy. The man's family sort of all lived in his house with him and him and the police officer had a relationship together and then everybody was just kind of cool with it. That's what it seems like. Like the family was in a house that he owned and then the policeman was staying with him. It sounds like kind of the best case scenario, really. Yeah, they found a way to work it out. You can actually see him in the um, 1935 film David Copperfield. Right, yeah, he's got a cameo. The story I heard about it was, he plays a vicar Mm -hmm. that is giving a sermon, I believe, in school that's putting David Copperfield to sleep. I think, uh, not the magician, the character in the the book. But um, (laughs) from what I hear, the, the, the legend is that David Selznick kept trying to trip him up because the sermon was just improvised. You know, oh, he, right. he was just coming up with it off the top of his head. And so he kept retaking and retaking, thinking that he would run out of things to say. But he never, he never did. did. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that's probably that school experience working its way out. Right. And then he was just a really good storyteller as well. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, that's some background on the author. Let's get back to this story. The narrator invited this guy Runciman over for dinner. He's regretting that he did it because the guy is so awkward. I thought it was funny right away. Yeah. The story. Yeah, this is a really good story. Really well written and and funny and interesting. He says, it's terrible because there's talk that dies every two minutes and has to be revived with terrific exertions. How many times (laughs) have you been in that one? (laughs) Oh, so you like uh, sports? No. You eat in restaurants occasionally? Not really. And then you say something crazy like, uh, did somebody fart? (laughs) Anything you can. Anything. And that's what this ghost gambit is here. You know, yeah. he's, he's just, so do you believe in ghosts? And I don't know what the hell else to say. Let's bring that up. And when he does, it gets his attention. Yeah. And you know that when that question comes up at a dinner, you're about to either have the greatest or the worst conversation with people. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, dude. I've had some people tell me ghost stories that are just horrible. Really, obviously, nothing <laughs> supernatural happened to them. <laughs> But they kind of think something did. Exactly. That is exactly what I mean. Sometimes tells you a story and you go, wow, I can't explain that. That gave me chills. But most of the time, no, no, this really happened every <laughs> night. I was in bed and there was somebody at the foot of my bed. I know it. Granted, I had been asleep the whole time and it was probably just a nightmare and who gives a shit. But I know it happened. So Runciman takes over the story at this point. This happened to him 15 years ago. This story has to do with his invitation to this man, Robert Lunt, Mm -hmm. his house. Robert Lunt was a writer and Runciman was a critic at the time who reviewed one of his stories favorably. Lunt invited Runciman to stay for a visit and talk about writing and also to kind of help with his loneliness because his wife just passed away almost a year ago. Yeah, he characterizes Lunt's loneliness really well. It's the same thing where he's hoping that perfect friend, that ideal friend who will understand all one's feelings, who will give affection without being sentimental, will take an interest in one's affairs without being impertinent. The sort of friend one never finds. That's what this guy wants so much. And he's inviting him for Christmas, I think, actually. Yeah, yeah, right around Christmas time. And the guy didn't really think he would come, but he was just like, you know what? I really like this guy's writing. I'm sure it'll be it'll be cool. Yeah, in fact, he's thinking, you know, we're both kind of floundering in our careers right now. Yeah. Maybe we can help each other out and work on something together. Yeah, <laughs> collaborate. 
It'll be fun. This is down in Cornwall. Yes, Lunt lives in Cornwall. Which, in, in the town of Penzance, he takes the train down there. There's a guy that's going to meet him up. It's cold. It's just starting to snow. And there's a driver, not not Lunt himself, but a driver. Some, some guy's going to take him. So he gets into the cab. And once he gets inside the cab, he feels like he has made a horrible mistake. Right. Like, there's just that feeling of like, oh, I did something bad here. I shouldn't be going on this trip. He talks about how cold it is in the, even though it's cold outside, it's extra cold inside of this Mm -hmm. cab. And also it's stinky, like kind of an old kind of mildewy, horrible kind of, kind of feeling. Takes him to the house. It's by the time he gets there, it's very cold. Lots of snow has already fallen. The driver gets out, rings the bell. Another old guy, because it's an old guy that's driving, Mm -hmm. answers the door and he says, they kind of look like each other. So they could be brothers. They have a conversation. The guy comes out, grabs his bags, and brings him into the house. And the house that he arrives at, he says, before me was a humped and ungainly shadow, the house that was to receive me. He does not like this place either. No. I've never at any period of my life hated at first sight so vigorously any dwelling place into which I have ever entered as I did that house. But still, he goes inside of it because it's it's warm. There's a fire. He makes a beeline to the fire. Mm. I was, in fact, so eagerly pleased at the large and leaping fire that I moved towards it at once. Not noting, at the first moment, the presence of my host. And when I did see him, I could not believe that it was he. I have told you the kind of man that I had expected. But instead of the sparse, sensitive artist, I found facing me a large, burly man, over six foot, I should fancy, as broad-shouldered as he was tall, giving evidence of great muscular strength, the lower part of his face hidden by a black, pointed beard. But if I was astonished at the sight of him, I was doubly amazed when he spoke. His voice was thin and piping like that of some old woman, and the little nervous gestures that he made with his hands were even more feminine than his voice. But I had to allow, perhaps for excitement, for excited he was. He came up to me, took my hand in both of his, and held it as though he would never let it go. You know, maybe I've been watching too much RuPaul's Drag Race at your recommendation, (laughs) and thank you so much. Dude, I love RuPaul's Drag Race. That show is amazing. It's better than Breaking Bad. (laughs) (laughs) I feel that way right now. I really thought at this moment, but maybe this guy would turn out to be Mrs. Lunt. What? Because he describes him as having this huge black beard, but having a woman's voice, like an old woman's voice. You just thought it would be a woman with some kind of weird condition, like too much hormones or something? Or like Mrs. Lunt killed her husband and then is wearing a beard to trick people or something. I really was wondering if that was where it was going. Wow. No. Because it says his gestures and his hands were even more feminine than his voice. Like everything about him is touching him. I didn't think that. But what I did think, because I knew the background of Uh the author, is at this point it seemed to me like he was maybe telling a story of something that actually happened to him. Right. Not the ghost bit. Now, I've been on blind dates before, and I've done internet dating and things like that, where you're kind of talking to somebody on emails or you're, you're calling them or whatever. You get a scent. You, you think you know who they are. And yeah. then when you meet them, you're like, oh, no, I was completely wrong on everything. I've even had second dates like that. I remember meeting a girl. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I met a girl. Uh, you were with me. It was on Frank Sinatra's birthday party at, at the room in, in Hollywood. Oh, I met a girl. Yeah, yeah. At night, I thought she was the greatest. I totally was head over heels with her. I was also probably 12 beers in at the time. Yeah. I had a second date with her, and when she showed up, I was like, oh, boy, this is not 
<laughs> this is not what I thought. No, no dig on her. It was just immediately I was like, this is not going to work out. Yeah. And I think she felt the same way about me. So it was just a really awkward uh, coffee. But what I think this is, I, like, it just rings of that kind of encounter. Maybe Walpole had like a connection with a writer and maybe there was mm. some sort and he was hoping that it was going to be this perfect friend that he was looking for. And he went to go meet the guy and the guy was totally not what he was expecting the dude to be like. Right. Because there's something about this that just rings true. Not necessarily a romantic encounter or sexual or just maybe he was secretly hoping in the back of his head maybe that, that something might come of it. But sort of crushing disappointment when you realize that yeah. that you have tricked yourself. Yeah, exactly. He was going to be working with this guy and they were going to be kindred spirits. He's yeah. romanticizing the coast where he was going. And then he shows up and it's this tall womanly bearded guy who's really creepy and weird. There's yeah, a high-pitched voice. He's like, hey, dude, how's it going? Hey, uh, we're going to write some stuff. You like me, don't you? Yeah, we're friends, right? Huh? And that's what reminded me. It's funny that I read this and then saw Taste because one of the interesting things about Taste is when the person who is going to be eaten shows up, he and his host kind of look at each other and the host is like, oh, your hair is different. They actually have that very normal reaction to meeting somebody that you know over the internet. Weird. It made it seem much more mundane what they were about to do <laughs> because they were having those small problems. So creepy. Now, we get to the first kind of haunting incident pretty quickly where our narrator gets shown to his quarters. Mm-hmm. Beardy goes away. Yeah. And he's in there kind of just getting settled. He opens up the window and as he does, there's this intense cold which comes in from outside and also the loud sound of the sea. Closes the window really quick and as he turns around, there's an old woman standing there. And he is as sure as as one can be that he saw this old woman. He goes into describing like, I am i don't drink. I'm sure that I saw this woman there. I'm positive. I wasn't expecting to see an old woman. Therefore, it wasn't something that I just conjured up right. out of expectation. Yeah. It was the last thing I expected. And now we know because he's talking about this that this has got to be the ghost. She wore a black silk dress, and on her breast was a large, ugly gold brooch. She had black hair, brushed back from her forehead and parted down the middle. She wore a collar of some white stuff round her throat. Her face was one of the wickedest, most malignant and furtive that I have ever seen. Very white in color. She was shriveled enough now, but might once have been rather beautiful. She stood there quietly, her hands at her side. I thought that she was some kind of housekeeper. I have everything I want, thank you, I said. What a splendid fire. I turned for a moment towards it, and when I looked back, she was gone. When this happens, he says, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I was just, Mm -hmm. oh, well, she left, whatever. You know, she's just the help, not a big deal. Yeah. And he obviously didn't think it was a ghost at this point. He doesn't know he's in a ghost story. Exactly. But after she leaves, there comes this... uh smell. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's, he says, um, it's the nastiest chilly kind of odor that comes from bad sanitation and stuffy rooms combined. You meet it sometimes at little country inns and decrepit town lodgings. I'm like, I know that smell. I do too. It, it was so rooted the story in reality yeah. when you described it that way. He's a really great writer in the, in the yeah, sense of like, yeah. he, it, there's lots of bits in this story that just feel real and true. Right. And that's that's the best thing about good weird fiction, I feel like, is if it's rooted in reality. And so when it takes that turn, you feel it. Exactly. As Lovecraft says, you know, you get to have good verisimilitude before you break it with something insane happening. Now, he leaves his room eventually. And he goes down to hang out with his host. And he's saying, you know, he's not a terrible guy. No. He's not unlikable. He's, he's pretty nice. And he's uh, really trying hard to make yeah. him feel at ease. But he's still a bit creepy. Right. And so they're looking at his 
book collection. Which is pretty vast. He has a really good collection. And while that happens, the guy kind of puts his arm around him. Yeah, like he's just kind of, they're getting along okay, and then he sort of just kind of puts his arm around his shoulder, runs him in, you know, gives him a shoulder shrug. <laughs> you know, one of those uh, Angel yeah. Merkel kind of things <laughs> oh, there. right. <laughs> yeah, no thanks, I don't want the massage right now, Mr. Bush. At that point, he says he instantly changed. Lunt did. Yeah. And he stood quivering and got really angry and he just started yelling all this stuff at him, like insulting him and abusing him, saying that he was taking advantage of his hospitality and throwing his kindness back in his face and all this just stuff that didn't make any sense. And then yeah. so Runciman is like, I'm a coward, so I didn't want to cause any problems. So I just said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. I yeah. apologize. And then... Luntz freaks out and then goes, oh, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm just, I have this temper and I, I get so upset. And then you can see that he's upset. Yeah, I, I felt like it really heightened the sense of loneliness that he has because it's, you know, when you try to give affection to somebody and it gets rejected. What do you mean? You go in for a kiss when maybe that wasn't the right move. Right. And then you get the, well, like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, no. And you're so humiliated that sometimes that becomes an anger. I understand that. Yeah, I, I personally never gotten angry about it just so horribly embarrassed that I have to right. run away <laughs> I'd literally just run up and <laughs> just run off down the street just yeah out the door and down the street even if my car was at the house <laughs> I was too embarrassed to get in my car and drive away I just had to run well because of this whole incident the man's like you know I'm gonna tell you my story then about 15 years before he had married the daughter of a neighboring clergyman mm -hmm. and this wasn't something he did because he was in love with her he just was lonely again it just seemed like this is oh I'll I need a companion so I'll marry this person so it wasn't very it's like the thing you do yeah they had no happy life together and she was she was mean she was overbearing she was narrow-minded yeah and just a year ago she suddenly died from heart failure. And so this is the reason that he's really isolated now. Some people have come to see him. He's not been able to do much work. He's just kind of going nuts out there. Yeah, well, I mean, he also talks about how he was kind of relieved when she died. He didn't like her and she didn't like him and they had a lot of problems, but he still felt extremely lonely. Yeah, and he says, it's just me out here and the old guy who does the cooking for me. Yeah. At which point Russellman says, well, what about the housekeeper? Lunt says, there's no housekeeper. He goes, yeah, no, there was a woman that came to my room. And he just goes, um, you're mistaken. And he goes, no, old lady, she had a black dress. And he just says, you are mistaken. You know, kind of really seriously. Yeah. Um, all right, sure. Yeah, maybe I made a mistake because he was afraid that the dude's going to rage out on him again. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't want him to flip out. So he says, yeah, yeah, just, sure. I just made a mistake. Well, the man says, please, can you stay with me another few days? If you did that, it would really make a difference for me. Runciman. It says he comforts him as he might a child. And he says, sure, I'll do it. Gets us into the second chapter. So we have Runciman again talking about how he didn't have the big picture at this point. But looking back, he seems to understand what was going on, what was happening, this spectral event. He says, well, you know, that night I went to bed and you would think I would, you know, because I'm telling a ghost story that it was going to be scary. But no, I actually had a great night's sleep. You know, I felt great. No big deal. Uh, then they went to his library together and read. Lunt looks up like he's heard something and Runciman listens too. This isn't the first time that Lunt has done that. Earlier he was looking as if something were there. When his hand was shaking, he seemed disturbed. So he's aware of something. Right. The way they describe it here, it says it seemed as though someone were on the other side of the library door with their hand raised to knock. So it's not the actual sound. It's just it's anticipation. And one of the few times that I had a scare like that was when I was in a friend's basement. Oh, yeah. And heard scraping against the door. This was in the middle of the night and I was by myself. It's uncharacteristic of me to get as scared as I did. 
yeah. uh, I went over to the door to listen and it wasn't that the noise stopped and I could swear there was somebody standing on the other side of the door. That was the thing that just really right. grabbed my heart and squeezed it. I was freaked out. <laughs> I actually waited in that room for another couple of hours until the sun came up and then I drove home. But I was so scared I wouldn't leave the room. Remember those ghost stories that we were talking about in the beginning of the show, Chad? Yeah, I do. This was one of the good ones, right? So uh, they have a nice lunch together. And I'm dying in this episode. <laughs> they have a nice lunch together. Hey, let's talk about the Running Man's War. <laughs> Here's Sub-Zero, now Plane Zero. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. They have a nice lunch. Oh, they have a nice lunch together. They go for a walk and, uh, you know, down by the sea. And mm. they have a nice time and they talk and they're really getting along well. And Rinsman even brings up the fact of, hey, you know, maybe we should work on a story together. I think that'd be fun. And like, mm. yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So they're on their way walking back, and then he sees the old woman, and he points. He goes, look, there's that woman, the woman I was talking about. And then Lunt tells him, there's nothing there. Don't you see? That's a shadow. What's the matter with you? Can't you see there's nothing there? And then Runciman steps forward. He's right. Yeah, there's nothing there. Am I hallucinating, or what's going on? What is but, going on? I don't understand. But Lunt is like, can't you believe me? I'm telling you, there was nothing there. Everything's fine. Yeah, everything's fine. Please don't leave me. Please don't leave me. And he drops even while he's kind of crazily on their way back. But I did nothing, I tell you. I did nothing. It was only her beastly malice. They rush home together. Runciman finally calls him out and goes, look, what is going on? You're acting crazy. What What's happening? Whatever you've done, just lay it on me. We'll, we'll figure it out together. Yeah. And Mr. Lunt says, it's fear. I'm off my head with loneliness and depression. My wife died a year ago on this very night. Ah. We hated each other. I couldn't be sorry when she died. She knew it. And when that last heart attack came on between her gasps, she told me that she would return. And I've always dreaded this night. So we got a little large Marge thing going yep. here. It seems like this story has had an effect as well on our narrator, or on Runciman. So he sits there with Lunt, holding hands like a couple of lovers, two men terrified, fearful of what was coming. They kind of wait out the night that way. Yeah. Gets us into our, our very short concluding chapter, chapter three. Getting back into the narration that Runciman's doing to our original narrator. Mm -hmm. And he just talks about how he can't really remember much of what happened in that vigil. I think they eventually both go to bed. And then he wakes up and sees Lunt standing inside of his room with a candle. With a nightshirt and a candle. A nightshirt and a candle. He's not nude. Right. <laughs> no, but... That's not why I said it. I just like the image of the guy in the nightshirt with the candle that's so classic. But yeah, I guess. Right. Let's, let's be very careful. He's not nude. In there. No, no, no. And he goes, please, would you just come? And he says, would you come with me and just hang out for just half an hour longer? Because then the night will have passed and this will all be past us. Yeah. Come up to my room, though, please. Yes. We're, we're going to be safer. Yeah. And he's like, but isn't it, wouldn't it be better to stay here? You know, like if she died up in your room, isn't this like a less creepy room to be in? And he's like, more safe up my room. He takes him up there and Lunt gets into bed and sits all hunched up with his hands on his knees, shaking yeah, like a child. There's something that's really scaring him. He runs him and sits with him on the bed and, and just talks about anything. Yeah, just filling space. He eventually kind of dozes off even doing this. And then he hears Mr. Lunt say, if I killed her, she deserved it. She was never a good wife to me. Not from the first. She shouldn't have irritated me as she did. She knew what my temper was. She had a worse one than mine, though. She can't touch me. I'm as strong as she is. He's basically fessing up. Yeah. That, honestly, I, I was a little surprised. Oh, of course. It makes sense now. That's why he's... Because he flipping murdered her. And it was then 
As clearly as I can now remember that his voice suddenly sank into a sort of gentle whisper as though he were almost glad that his fears had been confirmed. He whispered, She's there. I cannot possibly describe to you how that whisper seemed to let fear loose like water through my body. I could see nothing. The candle was flaming high in the last moments of its life. I could see nothing. But Lunt suddenly screamed with a shrill cry like a tortured animal in agony. Keep her off me! Keep her away from me! Keep her off! Keep her off! He caught me, his hands digging into my shoulders. Then, with an awful effect of constricted muscles, as though rigor had caught and held him, his arms slowly fell away. He slipped back onto the bed as though someone were pushing him. His hands fell against the sheet, his whole body jerked with a convulsive effort. And then he rolled over. I saw nothing. Only quite distinctly in my nostrils was that same fetid odor that I had known on the preceding evening. I rushed to the door, opened it, shouted down the long passage again and again, and soon the old man came running. I sent him for the doctor, and then I could not return to the room, but stood there listening, hearing nothing save the whisper of the sea, the loud ticking of the hall clock. I flung open the window at the end of the passage. The sea rushed in with its precipitant roar. Some bells chimed the hour. Then at last, beating into myself more courage, I turned back towards the room. And what do you think happened after that? He's dead. He was dead, of course. Ransomman says, you know, that's really all it is. I don't know if you can even call this a ghost story because I might have been hallucinating the old woman. Yeah, he even says, my idea of what the old woman was might have been nothing to do with what she actually looked like. Yeah, she may have been large and fat. Yeah. And maybe he just died because of his conscience for what he did. Right. But there's that last detail Mm -hmm. that we find in a lot of ghost stories. The only thing was on his body, there were marks on his neck especially. Mm -hmm. Some on his chest, as of fingers pressing in, scratches, and dull blue marks. Almost like he was strangled by a ghost, like he strangled his wife. And that's pretty much the end of the story, except there's a bit of a a slam on Cornwall. Right. I don't like Cornwall. Beastly County. Queer things happen there. Something in the air. Good ghost story. I enjoyed it. It didn't, you know, scare me really, but... uh... The characterizations were so good and the writing was so good in the situation. It it helped it a lot. I mean, it was pretty common as far as ghost stories go. We've, in fact, done a a handful of these where there was a a woman in a room. Yeah. That's happened a number of times. It's nothing new in the ghost part of it, but the way that the story is told, the touches of realism really just seemed legitimate to me. Yeah. And I I just liked it. And it moves quick. It's a good story. Uh, we don't have much time left, but since this is the introduction to our ghost month, I was calling it Ghosts of May. Some folks wrote in. This was the one that I liked the the best as a title for the month. Uh-huh. Phantasme or Phantasme, <laughs> which a couple of people wrote in with. Oh. You know, phantasm, but just add the word May to the end. We have begun Phantasme. Next week. Now, a lot of people wrote in to say, if you're doing a Ghosts of May, don't be stupid. You have to do this one story by M.R. James called A Warning to the Curious. I've heard a lot about the story, and I have yet to read it. I have yet to read it. A a number of people asked us to do it. I looked in supernatural horror and literature. The story itself is actually not mentioned in there, but the collection that it's in is, and and Lovecraft is a huge M.R. James fan. So I think we can get away with 
oh, yeah. reading it. Uh, we actually might do more. Maybe we'll do more MR James this month. I'm not sure. Our only experience so far was Count Magnus, which we kind of liked, but also yeah. dug on a little bit. So I think Warning the Curious is the one that people really see, see as his short story masterpiece. So I'm looking forward to uh, to tackling it, seeing yeah. what it's all about. I want to once again thank our reader, Heather Clinking. She's amazing. For doing a great job and, and spooking it up for us once again. I'm terrified. We also want to thank our sponsor for this week, Squarespace. They are at squarespace.com. You can get your website hooked up there. Remember, you get a 10% discount if you use offer code HPL. HPL. 10% off your first purchase, and it shows your support for the show if you use Squarespace. So get your site set up. A better web starts with your website, and that's at squarespace.com. And that's all we have for this week. We're gonna, we'll be chatting with you again next week. Uh, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. <laughs> <laughs>